Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, December 2nd. We begin with a look at Canada's access to information system, a system that many have raised concerns about when it comes to the time it takes to receive information when requested. We speak with David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, who provides some first-hand examples of issues he's encountered with the system. Next, we've been masking up now for close to two years, but many still have questions about what type of mask offers the most protection from the coronavirus. We hear the findings of a self-declared mask nerd and engineer, Aaron Collins. The pandemic has been a rough ride for many local businesses. We catch up with Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Calgary-based Parker PR, for some suggestions to help navigate this challenging time and how to use events to help bolster your business and elevate your brand. And finally, Wednesday was World AIDS Day. We speak with the director and producer of a new documentary called Undetectable, which chronicles the current state of AIDS in Canada and across the globe, and at the same time examines the stigma still attached to HIV AIDS. Canada's Access to Information Act is designed to provide Canadians the right to get access to information under control of the federal government. But the system is broken in that a simple request can take years. With details, we're joined this morning by Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, David Aiken. Good morning, David. Morning, guys. Okay, so what's the story we're talking about here? How do you say the access to information system is broken? <laughs> yeah, th- th- it is broken. It-, it was broken when, you know, shortly after Jean Chrétien invented it, it got worse when Stephen Harper was Prime Minister. And then some guy named Justin Trudeau showed up and said, I'll fix this thing, I'll make it work. And it has gotten worse under six years of Trudeau. And here's here's just an example. And I'm going to talk a bit. Uh, you may hear me use the term ATI or ATIP. That stands for Access to Information. And that's the federal government's Access to Information Act. Alberta will have its own Freedom of Information or FOI laws. They're all not working so great. Doesn't matter what province or wherever. But but I I. I I figured I'd bring this to people's attention because I was triggered last week when I finally got a little memo that I'd asked for from the federal government, from the Foreign Affairs Department. I knew the title of the memo. I knew the document ID number. So this should be easy to find. I had all the, you know, exactly what I I needed. And it wasn't very controversial. There's a program that the federal government runs to take foreign diplomats on tours of our Arctic territories. You know, good idea. Get them out of Ottawa. Get them to see what a beautiful country this is, particularly um, our Arctic territories. So I said, uh, can I have that memo? It took 520 days for them to release this thing. It was three pages long, and there wasn't a word blacked out because, as I said, it's just like, well, if it's a good program, it costs this much money. And that that was just the latest example, and this has been going on for years under the Trudeau government. Some other ones. Uh, uh, Our international trade minister, he went down to Chile in 2019 for a a minister's conference, and I asked for the briefing book, you know, what did you want to talk about? Give me some background of what, what was going on there. Well, it's been 837 days and counting, and I'm still waiting for that particular briefing book. Um, I asked then Foreign Affairs Minister Christopher Freeland. She had a phone call with her um, Mexican counterpart. And when they do phone calls, they usually prepare a little briefing note. You get some good background about the current state of Mexican-Canada relations or whatever. Well, that took 550 days. The rules are government's supposed to come back with this stuff 
in 30 days, in a month. There are some delays they can apply in very specific circumstances, and the, the Act spells those out. But I'll tell you, there's no scenario in which they're allowed to take, you know, 500 days for a 10-page briefing note on the state of Canada-Mexico relations, or tons of them. And so this is one of the big issues in FOI, in ATI, in Alberta, in Canada, delays. Governments write the rules around access to information, and they always give bureaucrats some excuses to delay giving information. I should point out, probably goes without saying, I don't care the stripe of the government, governments just generally do not want to give you this information. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're a church group, a business, an NGO, everyday Canadians, and yes, journalists, tens and thousands of access requests are filed to the federal government every year. And it's just as broke as it's ever been. And it got brokered during the pandemic because in the pandemic hit, uh, for whatever reason, access to information workers were not considered essential. <laughs> and so they were sent home, like a lot of other government workers. And a lot of their work is done on super secure networks, because they're dealing sometimes with sensitive information, that you can only access from the office. So the whole access to information system in early 2020 essentially ground to a halt. Now, government workers are in Ottawa, they're back in the office in, in many instances, but they're still using this excuse of the pandemic will cause delays. If you go online to file a request, you get a big warning. There's going to be delays to your request because of the pandemic. Well, here's the thing. We have a federal we have a federal information commissioner, an independent officer of parliament, who a year ago said, sorry, nowhere in the law are you allowed to use the pandemic as an excuse to delay production of records. That's She's had to say that lots of times. They don't care. The, the, these federal bureaucrats don't care. They say, well, pandemic. Pandemic makes it too hard to do the work. And so we have these ridiculous situations where you're waiting 18 months, two years, three years. I heard from a lawyer yesterday. <laughs> he got he got a he got a note. You get a notice when they're going to delay your request. He got a notice saying, I'm sorry, the records you want, it's going to take us a little while. It'll take us 21,000 days to figure out these <laughs> records. That's 80 days. years. 80 years. <laughs> 21. Now that's just, that's sorry, nuts. your client's so, dead by the time that happens, Mr. Pretty so it yeah, makes you feel is, better about say, 520 days, though, doesn't it, David? Uh, you only waited 520. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. 500, first 21,000 days. Can you believe it? Anyways, it's, it was broken under Harper. It's worse under Trudeau. Problem was, Trudeau said, I'll fix this. No, he has not. Not in any shape, way, or means. I'm wondering, is this department-wide from your uh, knowledge, David, or is it in one particular department? Of no, the that's government? a good point. That, so all those were, I just, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at Global Affairs Canada, the Foreign Affairs Department. It's the wor it's one of the worst offenders, but it is government wide. We, we filed that this is just not me, but, uh, the whole global news team in Ottawa, where we use access to information requests a lot. We just, you know, uh, got some important information about, you know, where we are in the Huawei telecom rollout mm -hmm. using access to information. That's on our website, but this is the Department of National Defense, the RCMP. Oh my God. They're, they are the absolute worst. If you ask the RCMP for stuff, all sorts of complaints about them. Uh, it's uh, Crown Indigenous Relations, um, you know, you name it. You name the government department, uh, there's going to be some problems. Some are not bad. The finance department, I found, has been relatively okay, you know, some delays, but uh, but global affairs is, is the worst, but it's government-wide. They just had a big fight in B.C. next door. It's, uh, I don't know, the, the people in the FOI community have been talking about this, where the NDP government there just raised fees. There's a fee you pay in Alberta, I think it's 25 bucks you got to pay to file a request. That's ridiculously too high. In the uh, federal government, it's five bucks to ask for a request. BC just introduced a fee of $10. And it was introduced by BC New Democrats, and many in that government used to be Ottawa NDP MPs who would complain about these fees. 
I, we've been talking about delays. Fees are another issue, and I can tell you that the the FOI fee that the Alberta government charges inhibits people because you, you really sit down and think: Is this twenty five bucks? Are is they really going to give you the yeah. information? Is it worth it? And that blocks access to information, and it's it's Albertans' right to have the information their government collects. Um, you know, but again, you ask an ask an ask an opposition politician if they get rid of it, and they'll say, "Oh, for sure, we'll we'll do that." And then when they get in government. Uh, it's a different story. So is there any hope of fixing it, or is it just this is the way it's going to be? You know, it's it's it, uh, politicians respond to voters. They respond to people writing in. And as I, that's why I always say this is not just journalists complaining about government doesn't work. This is a system. I Really, honest to God, church groups use it to find out about things. Uh, businesses use it all the time because government has important business intelligence. So businesses use uh, access to information all the time. Uh, researchers, academics, students, everyday Canadians just want to find out what's going on about a subject they have some interest in. So, uh, so as I say, tens of thousands, maybe a hundred, actually, there, I think it's usually a couple of hundred thousand requests a year are filed to the federal government, and only about 10% of those are from journalists. So it's, it's widely used. And so you just, just got to, I guess, tell your MP, tell your M, MLA, um, you know, that this is an important, it's a key tool of transparency and accountability. Mm. Opposition politicians, they have question period in their legislature. Well, you and I, we this is our question period. We can ask the government, hey, I got a question. I'd like to know about this. You know, what's going on? And whatever you do, pack your patience at this point for sure. <laughs> pack Thank your you. patience. 21,000 days. Get ready for it. <laughs> you got off with only 520. Let your grandchildren know as well because yeah. they might get the information right. When they get eventually. that phone call. Yeah. They won't have phones in 80 years. But uh, Thank you so yeah. much, David. We appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Cheers. It's David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. Well, masking up... Apparently isn't going away anytime soon, especially since there's new uh, word of the new COVID variant spreading around the world. This morning, we're joined by the mask nerd. That's a title he gives himself, by the way. Aaron Collins, who is a mechanical engineer with a background in aerosol science, who has evaluated a huge range of masks in order to find the best one. Good morning to you, Aaron. Good morning. Good morning, morning, Andy. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, Let's get right to it. Those cloth masks, the ones we see, they might have designs, might be homemade. Are the cloth masks uh, as effective as the the blue masks that we see that were handed out at, uh, you know, uh, in huge numbers at the beginning of the pandemic? Can we trust the cloth masks? Well, so cloth masks, I mean, they're better than no masks. But in general, cloth masks are good at what we call source control. And that's kind of what we, when we talk about wearing a cloth mask to protect others. Uh, but in terms of protection to the wearer, cloth masks aren't that great. We typically see those numbers around... Uh, Inhalation protection, that's kind of the protection of the wearer. That's around 30 to 50 percent. The blue squares, the surgical masks. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was interrupting. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that. So the surgical masks, those blue squares that we kind of talk about with the ear loops, those feature the technology that we have, the really high-tech nano filtration or not uh, high-tech melt blown uh, filtration media, which is pretty like our is our technology, right? The cloth mask is kind of our 1918 pandemic technology, you know, 100-year-old technology, what we're using back then. Um, But so they feature that. But, and they're a little bit better. They're, they're better at source control, uh, but in terms of protection of the wearer, are better but not the best because they don't have a good fit to the face. So they leak a lot around the mask. So we've been wearing these masks for a while, and really the two that you've just talked about are the two that most people wear on the regular. What is it, if we can go just step back a bit and talk about you know, why you decided to, to go back and, and sort of look at all the masks and, and which ones were operating best. Did, did you find anything that was, was really shocking when you did your research, and, and, and which one did you ultimately find was the best? 
Yeah, so actually, um, I kind of started this as a mask uh, newbie, <laughs> a new person to mask. Uh, I had the background in aerosol science, but I didn't spend a lot of time looking at respirators. Um, and what I found is that there are a series of masks that are really high performing, and um, we typically call those uh, protective masks, or sometimes you call them uh, the technical term as a respirator. And what I found is that really good KF94, um, some N95s and some KN95s, um, what I found is that they were super protective. And the kind of thing that blows people's minds is that they're actually more comfortable than a surgical mask and are easier to breathe in than a good, a quote unquote, good cloth mask. Hmm. So that kind of is always surprising to people because people think respirators, oh, they must be really hard to breathe in um, and they must be very difficult to wear. And uh, well, some N95s that are very cheap are not comfortable, uh, not great, and they're not well made. Uh, there are N95s and KF94s and K95s that are, yeah, that are really comfortable. And the shocker to me is that they're easier to breathe in than a good cloth mask. Let's talk about those N95s that you see. They, they you know, look like, to me, because I had no idea what an N95 mask was <laughs> yeah. two years ago. Now I know way too much about them. They look like almost uh, what a carpenter would use uh, working with sawdust, you know, in, in, a, in a work environment. Can you reuse those N95 masks? And for that matter, can we reuse the blue masks that so many of us have? And if so, does that impact the effectiveness? Yes, that's a great question. So when we talk about the, that melt-blown material, so yes, it can be reworn. Um, so with N95s uh, and KF94s and K95s, and they're actually some domestic-made Calgary or uh, Canada-made masks that are really nice too. Um, that they can be reworn. I did some experiments and looking at some a particular type of mask, uh, KF94, and I found that after 40 hours of wear, I really couldn't measure a significant change in the filtration efficiency. And this actually mass, matches how the masks are test. You remember those N95s, like you said, they're worn by a construction worker. They're meant to work in extremely dusty conditions for you know eight hours. And the level of dust that we're talking about those things is like two orders of magnitude, you know, a hundred times what you would experience in a day uh, normal wear. So what we find is that you can definitely rewear them. The challenges uh, with N95s and head straps are, do the, do the head straps start to loosen over time and don't fit as well to your face? That's So it's mostly like mechanical changes to the to the fitting more so than the filter media. Surgical masks, can you reuse them? Kind of, because they suck against your mouth and just kind of sit against your spit all the time, they're kind of gross to reuse. I mean, is the filter media, I haven't done a ton of tests on the filter media, so uh, likely they can be reused. But my opinion is given the cost and how they just get wet with all your spit, uh, probably would skip that with the surgical mask. What did you find was the absolute worst kind of mask? And is it one that we're actually using on the regular, Aaron? Well, it depends what you define as worst. So I consider, you know, when I think about a good mask, I think about fit, filtration, and comfort. And in my opinion, kind of the lowest rung of that ladder are cloth masks. Mm. One, they don't have a great fit. They don't really filter that well, both in terms of protecting, I mean, they protect others okay, but you, we better masks work both directions. So this high filtration material works during inhalation, so protecting others, or protecting yourself. And when you exhale, it also protects others better. So in terms of filtration, cloth masks are so great. And in terms of comfort, the thing that drives me nuts with cloth masks is when you breathe in, it sucks to your mouth and like you start chewing on your mask and that drives me absolutely insane. So, so there's a lot of masks that actually have designs to prevent that from happening. What about, you know, say cloth, but there's also those kind of stretchable, what, they, what they're calling neck gaiters these days you can wear around your neck and then pull over your face. Is that the same level of effectiveness when it comes to cloth masks to some of these lycra or uh, spandex materials? 
Well, so I didn't do a ton of tests with that, but there are some really good studies out there that have shown that those particular masks are, when we talk about cloth masks being the bottom of the rung of the ladder, those neck gaiters are like a couple inches above the ground. <laughs> they're really wow. not They're really not that effective at protecting others, and they really don't provide in, almost any protection at all to the wearer. I mean, it's like, it's one of the lowest percents by like 15, 20%. Now, of course, there's a lot of variety, and of course, these numbers are a broad range of materials, but typically they're, they're, the, they're not the best. Okay, the, Aaron, bottom line it for us. You're a mechanical engineer. You've got a background in aerosol science. You're a self-confessed mask nerd. You took this testing on just by yourself. What was the mask then overall that you think is the best one for us to really be using on a day-to-day basis? So what I think is to get people moving off a cloth mask, uh, and, I, and I wear this mask myself, I really like the KF94 standard. It's a boat style mask. It kind of like sits out against your face. It has low pressure drop. The great news is, is that in Canada, there's the Canadian PPE manufacturer. They make, you actually have domestically made versions of that mask. Brands like Canada Mask, where it ends in a Q instead of a K, kind of clever, I guess. But <laughs> they make that based on domestic materials right in Canada. I love that style mask. I actually tested one. That they, they mailed one down to me because I'd asked them to, and I tested it, and it is a high-end mask. I was really impressed. So I think if I was in Canada, I'd be purchasing those domestic-made uh, boat-style or 3D-style masks from can- brands like Canada Mask. The KF94. Yeah, uh-huh. or, or, or that, st- that style of mask. They're also, right. made, yeah, like I said, available in domestic sources. Uh, you, you know, your passion is incredible and uh, directed in the in the right uh, way in the sense that we want the best for ourselves and our family and friends. So we appreciate your time, Aaron. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. No problem at all. That's Aaron Collins, a self-professed mask nerd. Also, as, as Sue mentioned, a mechanical engineer with a background in aerosol science. So he has uh, done a lot of work for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can hear his passion, as I, as I said. <laughs> It's been a tough nearly two years for Calgary area businesses and many business owners might not know how to navigate through such unprecedented times. Joining us with uh, some insight and tips of the trade, we are joined by Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR. Good morning to you, Ellen. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for being here. Ellen, you've got some events to tell us about, but more importantly, how a business can elevate themselves and their brand in the midst of an event. Tell, Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, excellent. So just touching on a couple events, we've got the Tipsy Elf, which is a cocktail lounge opened at the Fairmont Palliser from December 1st through to the 24th. It's a really cool, beautiful, magical space. People can have cocktails. It's from Tuesday to Saturday. And then there's also a new liquor brand from Italy called Cadello. This is something that can be experienced at Wine Bar launch on December 14th. Also something to take into your own home while you're entertaining over the holidays because they have a list of excellent cocktail recipes accessible through the website. And then one last event to quickly touch on, we have the Youth Singers of Calgary. They've got their Holly Jolly House Party this Sunday at the Jubilee Auditorium. Tickets are still available for families if they're looking to do something fun. And I lo- very fun, all of them, obviously, that by the sounds of things, and important that we're, you know, getting back to live music, for example. But more, yeah. more importantly, you know, while a business or a business owner or any of us are participating in events like this, what are some of the tips we can use to elevate brand awareness, show audiences that we support local or charities, for that matter? Yeah, great question. So, number one, if you are a business owner having an event or if you are a guest attending an event... Take lots of photos. Use your social media accounts 
take photos of things like the food, the decor, the space, the venue. And when you're putting your photos on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or even TikTok, ensure that you're tagging people and you're using hashtags. And people always say, well, I don't know who to tag. You can tag up to 20 people. You can tag the venue. You can tag the people who provided the wine for the event. You can tag the musicians. If you're at an event and you see media, for example, also attending, tag the media. What this does is it creates so many different contacts through cyber world. So now people who are taking photos and posting are connecting with the media, are connecting with other guests, are connecting with the food, are exposed to the wine brand. So it's a great opportunity for the business owner to ensure they have someone who's assigned with this task during the event, as well as guests who attend. And if you're attending with guests who have a social media presence but don't necessarily like taking photos, offer to take photos for them Mm. and send the photos to them after the event. Because the more people showcasing what's happening in these small businesses and sharing it with everybody, uh, the more impact we're all going to have and driving traffic to these local shops. All right, let's uh, you know talk about something a little. It seems a little more low tech than the you know social media and email. Uh, you know, hopping on and sending an email or even looking at websites where they have those reviews and an opportunity to you know add how many stars you thought an experience was. How important is it to to send some feedback? Yes, it's extremely important. Research is showing us that more than ever, people are looking at Google reviews. People have been home a lot more and working from home, so there's more time to be cruising the websites and looking for things like this. So absolutely. And if you're going to an event, connect with the event organizers in advance, either through their Instagram account, you send a message, or through their website. Ask if you can have one minute just to chat with someone about the event. And ask if you can share any content that they have created on your own channels, if that's an opportunity for you. Um, You know, people who are having these events, they are working very hard at trying to create content and original content. So by helping them do that, it's fantastic. Another great thing to do is after the event, like you just said, do that review, do a Google review or email a testimonial and say, please feel free to use this on your website because those testimonials go a long way as well. You know, we're often quick to complain, Ellen. This is a great reminder that, you know, a positive review, a positive testimonial, a positive comment can really do so much, particularly now for a business or a business owner. Thank you so much. Great tips this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Have a great day, guys. You too. Ellen Parker is the CEO and owner of Parker PR. You can find more at parkerpr.ca. Uh, Let's uh, switch gears now. And World AIDS Day was yesterday. And as much as we've come a long way in the fight against it, HIV AIDS has not gone away. A new Canadian documentary called Undetectable is out now, available. And it focuses on the stigma surrounding the virus and how that stigma is directly linked to today's rising infection rates. Joining us now is the producer and director of Undetectable, Laura O'Grady. Good morning to you, Laura. Good morning, Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, well, we're going to get into it. Uh, the story uh, is, uh, this is a film about Mark Randall and his story. So tell us about Mark Randall. Um, Mark Randall lives here in Calgary. He's a remarkable and funny, wonderful guy um, who was diagnosed with HIV in the early 80s. Um, and then fortunately at that time, it was a death sentence. So he was told that he had three to five years to live and to get his um, get his uh, um, things in order, his life in order. 
Um, but thankfully, uh, through new drug uh, regimes, the tireless work of, of scientists and his doctor, John Gill, um, he was able to live long enough to get to what was then called the heart cocktail, um, which saved his life. And Laura, I mean, that's the, the, the great thing, right? There's been so many great advancements in medication, but there's still so much stigma surrounding just when you hear that, you know, that HIV AIDS, those those letters. I mean, it, it, it's still, I think it scares people. I think people still don't really understand it. Have we made enough advancements and, and why still the stigma? Yeah, scientifically, there's been remarkable advancements um, with the current anti uh, viral therapies, the ARVs, uh, people can live a long and healthy life taking one pill a day um, and manage it much like diabetes um, in, in its chronic condition. But the stigma still remains and uh, I think, you know, I'm of the generation where, you know, when you were in high school, you were, you were scared to sit on the toilet seat, you were scared to kiss your boyfriend, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Freddie Mercury and um, you know, the, the popular culture, it was terrifying because there was uh, certainly no treatment and definitely no cure. And it was a terminal diagnosis. Unfortunately, the, what has really been a remarkable Canadian innovation um, in the fact of t- treatment as prevention, meaning if you stay on your antivirals, you become undetectable. You cannot transmit HIV to any of partners if you stay on your ARVs, you're untransmittable. And that could effectively eradicate HIV AIDS in our lifetime. It's a huge, huge advancement and very few people know about it because I think people either think there was a cure or it fell out of you know, popular news and, uh, and it's, fell on, it's fallen off the radar. I'm wondering, Laura, as, as a filmmaker, when you present this topic and this project to people, are they surprised looking at the stats in our nation of uh, the fact that this is something that has not gone away? You get met with a lot of surprise? Um, I think, yeah, a lot of people are surprised. You know, they hearken back to their popular, you know, their memory of popular culture. Um, and I think people would be very surprised that HIV rates are actually going up in Canada now. They've rate, the, the last study said it was up 32%. Um, and so this is very much like a different pandemic that unfortunately we've all been living through. Community health affects all of our health. And so if we keep the viral load of HIV down, that means and we can eradicate the, you know, the pandemic globally, but certainly keep it um, out of uh, Canada as well to a pandemic uh, level. Um, and so, you know, just to talk about HIV there's no need to be scared of anybody that's living with HIV. They're wonderful people who are undetectable, contributing to our society. But as soon as the stigma can go away, then people will go get tested, go, go get on their mm-hmm. medication, and we'll bring down the community viral load. Laura, how do we watch and find your, your uh, film, Undetectable? Where can we find it? Yeah, thank you. It's a, a TELUS Originals documentary. We're very grateful for TELUS for being on board since the beginning. Uh, since we shot, we started shooting before the pandemic. It's on the TELUS Originals YouTube channel, um, so anybody can access it. It's on TELUS VOD if you have TELUS at home, and um, also on the Story Hive Facebook channel, so you can find it several different places. Awesome. We'll, we'll look out for it. Thanks so much for your time, Laura. We appreciate it. Thank you for your interest. That's Laura O'Grady, director and producer of Undetectable.
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.